reading today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Paul's talking to Timothy, his young disciple, who is just beginning in ministry. He would be around my age, Timothy, and Paul would be near the end of his career. And he's giving him advice about ministry. And in our chapter today, which you can find on page 1,155 to page 1,156, he's given him advice on how to be strengthened in the Lord. This comes from 2 Timothy. Listen for God's word to you. You then, my son, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier in Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Sim similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that to, they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also reign with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O oh, precious Lord, we are not strong on our own. So take us, take our hands and lift us up that we would be made strong, that we be strengthened, that we would be set free so that others may walk in freedom as well. Lord, any words that I say that are not of your will, I ask that they fall to the ground and be forgotten. But whatever I say that is of your will, I ask them bad in hearts and bear good fruit unto the kingdom of God. Lord, let us not hinder your word, but feed your sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the world of sports, strength, strength training pays off. Nowhere is this more true than in the world's strongest man competition. And yes, that's a real thing. To quote the website, the world's strongest man competition is more than just about force. It is about stamina, skill, tactics, training and strategy. Every event below is designed to push the strong men to their absolute limits, challenging not only their physical strength, but their agility and mental toughness too. 
One of the most famous events in the world's strongest man competition is the Atlas Stone. To quote the events page, the Atlas Stone is regarded as the signature event of the world's strongest man. As the final event of the whole competition, this event often determines the winner. Introduced in 1986, the Atlas Stones are five heavy spherical stones which increase in weight from 100 kilograms or 220 pounds to 160 kilograms to 300, which is 361 pounds. They need to be placed on top of five high platforms that span 16 to 33 foot long course. In the early years of this event, it was extremely rare for competitors to be able to lift all five stones. But now the expect expectation is that they will all be lifted and it's the time that it happens in that determines the winner. My, my favorite event, and you can go on the event page later and look at all the quite, quite frankly amazing events that they have in the World's Strongest Man competition, but my favorite event, as the children's sermons suggest, is the fridge carry, where they take two full-size fridges, put them on their shoulders, and walk at least 30 meters. I would participate in the fridge carry, but only if those fridges were mini fridges, and only if those mini fridges were filled with ice cream, because I'd be willing to suffer a brain freeze for the ice cream set before me, but not really into carrying actual fridges. Yet in this world, right, we rather be strong than weak. We rather be healthy than sick. But while sickness is contagious, health is not. Eating all the ice cream in the fridge will make us full, but it will also make us sick. Yet it is carrying the fridge, lifting those heavy burdens with the help of Christ, that makes us strong. Strength training is essential to winning any race. And Paul tells Timothy that's the same in our race of faith. And the good news today is when we train in grace, God will strengthen us to finish the race. Hey guys, even rhymes today. When we train in grace, God will strengthen us to finish the race. Well, how do we train in grace? Two things, we have to remember Jesus Christ, and we have to remember our training. First, we have to remember Jesus Christ. If you want to finish the race, you've got to start in the wrong place. If you're planning on training for a ma marathon and you end it up at the world's strongest man competition, and they want you to lift an atlas stone, that may be a problem. If you want to finish the race, you have to start in the right place. And Paul still tells us where to start. Start in grace by remembering Jesus Christ. By remembering his death and resurrection. By remembering what he did for us, which we cannot do for ourselves. John Calvin, who this church is named after, a great theologian, said this about God's grace. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures, high and below but never more brightly than on the cross. We begin the race of faith by acknowledging that we can't do it in our own effort, that Christ did it for us in his death and resurrection. The world, the sun does not revolve around the earth. The Bible never says that. But the Bible does say 
that all things were made by Christ and for Christ, that he shines brighter than our natural sun, that though the darkness is strong, light has overcome the darkness. We remember Christ by gathering together to be strengthened in worship, by praying with each other, by suffering with each other, by eating with each other, though not too much ice cream, a little ice cream never hurts, and by participating in the sacraments, baptism and communion, which were taught in the Reformed tradition, puts a sign and seal. It is a visible manifestation of what God has done for us. And when we take time to remember him, he promises that he, he will strengthen us. For even when we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. We have to remember Christ to stand in his grace. Because if you want to run the race, you've got to start in the right place. Second, we need to remember our training. And in this, Paul provides three metaphors. The metaphor of a soldier, the metaphor of an athlete, and the metaphor of a farmer. In the metaphor of a soldier, Paul talks about a soldier on deployment not being concerned with civilian matters. And many here in Hampton Roads, even many here in this room, know the burdens and the trials of deployment. To quote a military.com article, during the deployment, family members have a range of feelings and experiences, including concern, worry, or panic, loneliness, sadness, added family duties and responsibilities, learning new skills, making new friends, fear for their service members' safety, feeling overwhelmed, financial difficulties, dealing with problems on their own understanding what your loved ones have been through and concern over being needed and loved. Paul says when we attempt to build Christian community, it's like being a soldier on deployment and we will face all those fears and we will face all those problems, but we must keep our eye on the crown and we do this by taking every thought captive. As he says in 2 Corinthians, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have a divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The war we wage as Christians is the war in our minds. And it's the stories we tell ourselves, the stories of pride, which said we've done it all on our own, the stories of shame, which says we have failed and now we're on our own. Both are lies. And we need to learn to balance what the scripture says. And I believe the scripture, what the scripture says can be summed up in Psalm 139 and Psalm 103. And I'm going to sum them up. Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That each of us today, we're knit together in our mother's womb. And we can go nowhere from God's presence. Even in the darkest of dark, God can still see us. 
And there are some of us here today who need to know that truth, who need to know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And if that's you today, you are. You, yes, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. But the other truth is Psalm 103, which says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless him all that is in me. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, with crowns us with steadfast love and mercy, who renews our youth like the eagles. That last part, renewing youth, sounds like a really great thing. As we get older, that sounds like a really good thing. But it's conditioned on what comes later in the psalm, where the Lord says he knows our frame, and we're but dust, and to dust we shall return. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, but what are we made out of? We're made out of dirt. The scripture says that. Adam's name means dirt, which maybe some ladies might agree sometimes that yeah, we all feel that way. But if you're made out of dirt in life as trials come, it's easy to fall apart. But to be put back together again, we got to admit our frame. We got to admit our frame that from dust we came and to dust we shall return. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, but to be remade, we need to humble ourselves and admit who we are what we're made out of, and we're made out of dust. And that is the work of a soldier. Next, Paul says, like an athlete, we got to compete by the rules. He's talking about God's law. And there are a lot of laws in the Bible. If you read through the Old Testament, it says a lot of things that are hard to understand. But Christ came to fulfill the law. And Paul says, all this law can be fulfilled in this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as always, of course, easier said than done. But Paul gives us the key in that, that verse we hear in every wedding, love is this, love is this, love is kind, all of these things that you hear at your weddings, your Christian vows. It begins with one thing. Love is patient. And in our impatience, patience, we want to jump over that and get to all the other good stuff. But patience always comes first. You know, in thinking about patience, I was moved by a book by Karen Swallow Pryor. Her book's entitled On Reading Well. She takes a lot of um, classic literature and draws out the Christian themes about it. She's a professor at Liberty University. And she says patience better than I ever could. And I quote her, whenever I'm asked to give advice about life to young people, I give them the same answer. Be patient. What I mainly mean when I say this is slow down. Don't be in a hurry. Life is long. Work hard. And the rewards will come. The dreams you have, some of them will come true. Those that don't will be replaced by others, maybe even better ones. In the context of everyday life, we think of patience in more mundane terms. Being patient is what we aim for or fail at when sitting in traffic, preaching to Hampton Roads right now, standing in line or waiting for a table. But patience is more than waiting. The essence of patience 
is being willing to endure suffering. That suffering is the meaning of the root word of patience is made clear by the fact that we use patient to refer to someone under medical care. The patient is someone suffering from an ailment, not only waiting. Patience shares the same root with the word passion, which means suffering. Someone who has a passion, a passion for music, a passion for soccer, a passion for a person suffers on behalf of that love. When we speak in the church about the passion of Christ, it literally refers to the suffering on the cross that Christ did on our behalf. The overlap between the word suffering and patience is also in the word permit. When Jesus said, suffer the little children to come to me, as an ancient translation says, he meant permit them to come. And in the women's suffrage movement, we refer to women being permitted to vote. The word permit in these contexts suggests willingness. The willingness to endure suffering is the heart of being patient. And I, indeed, I believe that when we are willing to suffer and don't avoid it, that we allow the love of Christ to dwell in our hearts more richly, to form our character. As Paul says in the book of Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Perhaps some of you are, are suffering today. And I can't tell you why. I always say the question of why is above my pay grade. But what I can say is all things work together for good. So press in. Press in to that suffering that the love of Christ may dwell in us richly because he suffered for us unto the point of death. So let us press into our suffering that something good may come out of it. The final metaphor Paul gives us is the metaphor of a farmer. And this reminds me of my favorite verse. Uh, let us not grow weary of doing good, but let us reap a harvest. For we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Galatians chapter 5. You know, farmers can't control a lot of things. Can't control the weather, can't control the world that's going on around them, but they can control the seed they plant. And the seed we plant, as we have been talking about last week, is the power of our words. Speaking God's word of life to encourage each other. Robert Morris is the author of The Power of Your Words. And he says to know the power of our words, we have to first confront the power of the lies we tell about our words. And there are three. The first lie we tell about our words is that we have freedom of speech, which we do in this country. It's a blessing not to be persecuted by the government for what we say. Not every nation can say that. But the scripture is clear. Jesus says we will be held for account of every careless word 
we have ever said. Paul says that our words and our works will be tested as through fire. What we have built on hurt and death will be burned away. And while we may be rich in this life, we may find that we are paupers when we get to the kingdom of God. If we have not built our lives on the power of our words. The second lie we tell ourselves is, if you're just kidding, it doesn't count. To quote Morris, imagine if someone you knew burst into your home with a deer hunting bow and fired an arrow at you, striking you in the legs. You'd probably say, you're nuts. Are you trying to kill me? And he and doesn't make it any better if he says, hey, it's a joke. Come on, where's your sense of humor? Hurtful words pierce us deep into our souls. You can't get away with it by saying you are just joking. The final uh, lie we tell ourselves is that once your words are forgotten, their influence is gone. To quote Morris, words echo through eternity and they have lasting repercussions. When he accepted this truth in the relationship with his wife, Morris testifies that a stronghold was broken. How do we break strongholds? Yes, it is by the stories we tell ourselves, but just as importantly, it is by the words we speak to one another. Paul tells us that when we remember Jesus Christ and when we remember our training, we will be free. We will be free from quarreling. Because the word of God is not bound. And when we know the one who says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, when we train in his freedom, we will be set free. And yet it never happens as quick as we want. But Paul says, if we hope in what we do not see, we wait for it. We wait for it with patience. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.